0: is Core Discovery. Hello and welcome to this episode of Core Discovery with me, Abigail Acton. Bees are vital to food security, but they're under threat. The EU estimates pollinators such as honeybees contribute at least 22 billion euros each year to the European agricultural industry. They ensure pollination for over 80% of crops and wild plants in Europe. They're so important that the United Nations has designated the 20th of May as World Bee Day. But bee colonies are under pressure from climate change, pests, chemical fertilizers, and habitat loss. One in ten bee and butterfly species in Europe are on the verge of extinction and one third of them are in decline. Clearly, a better understanding of the ways bees interact with their environments is needed. Can we bring our technical innovations to the rescue by making hives more resilient? Does a deeper understanding of the physiology of bees shine a light on how they interact? The word microbiome has filtered through into our everyday lives. The notion of intestinal diversity and gut health is something that's used widely to sell food, supplements and get us eating sauerkraut. But what about bees? Does their microbiome impact upon their brains and the way they process their environments? And what about the plant's perspective? How have plants evolved to invite some insects and deter others? Do leaf-chewing insects influence the evolution of flowers and the messages they send to pollinators? Fortunately, today, we have three guests whose projects have been supported by the EU's Horizon 2020 program, putting them in the perfect position to answer these and other questions. Welcome to Halal Shreya, who is co-founder and head of research at BeeWise, a company that is bringing cutting-edge technology to the art of beekeeping. By focusing on the intersection of software, artificial intelligence, hardware, and biology, Halal is helping to bring beehives into the 21st century. Welcome, Halal. Hey, there we go. Stuart Campbell is a Natural Environment Research Council Research Fellow at the University of Sheffield, where he leads a laboratory in the chemical ecology and evolution of insect-plant interactions. He is academic lead for the Ecological Metabolomics Group. Welcome, Stuart. Hello. Juanito Liberti is an evolutionary molecular ecologist based at the University of Lausanne. He is interested in understanding how social interactions, both those that are beneficial and those that generate conflict, are shaped by natural selection. Juanito is currently studying how the gut-brain axis manifests itself through the social behavior of honeybees. Welcome, Juanito.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: I'm going to turn to Halal first, if I may. Halal, the Bee Home Project, which was run by your startup BeeWise, harnesses the power of artificial intelligence to support bee colonies within the hive and help crop growers protect their bees. What are the challenges that makes the use of AI relevant, please, Halal?
2: Well, um, I think in in um, precision agriculture in general and, and beekeeping isn't, isn't different in that sense. What we're trying to do is address the needs of each individual colony according to its specific state. So that has a few parts to it. First, it's gathering data and inferring the state of the, of the hive. And then it's um, administering uh, procedures and, and, um, and various operations on the hive based on that data. So AI is part of all of that. So it starts with gathering the data and we're using uh, computer vision an AI to infer the hive states uh, from our sensors. Um, so, if
0: I could stop you for a second, particularly, what are the challenges that hive colonies are facing that AI is 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 well placed to address? So, can it, for example, identify influxes of predators or?
2: Sure. Okay. So, um, generally, we can assess the state of the hive. Like, if it's a weak hive, which is having any type of trouble, or problems, uh, such as uh, pests uh, infestation. Um, hunger, uh, harmed queen, which isn't uh, laying egg, eggs eggs properly, uh, all of that we can uh, infer from our sensors using AI.
0: And for example, you mentioned there the notion of hunger. How how would sensors within a hive let you know if there was enough food for the bees or not?
2: Well, you don't sense. We can we can first of all, you know, um, sense the the amount of honey. Um, and pollen in the hive, so that's uh, something we have direct uh, direct data of. Right, um, and then we can also uh, infer their activity based on on various um, parameters and sensors. Um, so, so that gives us a pretty good uh, idea of of how well the hives are doing.
0: Right, and could you tell me a little bit about how the hives are designed? I mean, how many colonies can you support in one of your hives, for example?
2: So our device, the the Bee Home, uh, is not a single hive. It's like a full apiary, um, or or like a small um, small grazing area, um, and it has it houses between twenty and forty hives, depends on the season and on, on the use.
0: And how um, many bees would that be, more or less? Not down to the one, but approximately.
2: Well, that also depends on the season, but it will, you know could be around 2 million bees. Wow. Roughly, Fascinating.
0: You know. Goodness me, all yeah. in one one big and what sort of is it like a series of hives or is it one big box? Could you describe it a bit for us?
2: Sure. So, it is a series of hives which are divided from each other. There are partitions dividing the hives within within the device and there are hives on both sides of the of the device and like a corridor in the center uh, where the um, the robotic mechanism uh, is and that's where you know that's where we extract the uh, frames that's where our sensors are uh, that's where we do our operations within the, that corridor
0: With all those bees how do they know which hive to go to
2: so they, first of all, bees you know they, they sense their own hives based on a few cues, so it's uh, smell and visual cues. Um, so we have specific uh, color patterns on the um, on our device which help them uh, get back to their own uh, to their own hive.
0: So it helps them orientate themselves. okay. Right. And so what's the principal idea behind this then? Is it to preserve colonies? Is it to support farmers? and what are the other benefits?
2: So I would say it's both. Um, it's first of all to preserve hives and, and um, create a platform to be able to better treat the hives and treat each hive according to its uh, individual needs, um, and make sure you know we, we track problems on time and treat them and, and make sure that hives do not collapse. Uh, so that's one aspect of it, and then the other is. Which is which is closely related to the first one is uh, being able to um, supply farmers with the pollination they need. So farmers need you know, strong and healthy hives uh, for their crops. So so that's a that's an outcome um, of maintaining healthy bees.
0: Uh huh. And have you done any comparisons between how your hives using artificial intelligence are? working in comparison to more traditional approaches. I mean how much healthier if I could use that word are they? How much better are they at preserving colonies? Do you have any idea about that?
2: Sure. so um, we have we were tracking that obviously. We are able to reduce colony uh, collapse by quite a bit. Um, so I mean currently worldwide it's you know between 30 and 40 percent. That's kind of the uh, common common numbers in most countries, and you know we're we able to reduce it to the ten, like to the or even even below that. So that okay, that's a, yeah, yeah. that's a real impact. Yeah, that's
0: a real impact. That's that's impressive. Okay, and how does it benefit farmers apart from the fact that the colony is healthier? Is there something else that the that, I mean presumably it's is it easier to run a colony and look after them?
2: So. I mean, we supply our data to the beekeeper, obviously, but we also have um, a designated app for the farmer as well. So the farmer can have visibility as to the, um, to the um, hives, which are in his uh, fields and, and orchards. Um, so you know, currently, when beekeepers bring their hives to the, um, to the fields, farmers don't really have that much data as to you know, what's really going on in the hives.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about, more specifically, what kind of data? What, what, what is important for the farmers to know?
2: Well, they want to know, I mean, they're interested in pollination. That's, that's what they care about. Um, but the way for them to make sure that they get the pollination they need is by making sure the hives they get are as strong um, as promised. Um, so they're interested in the amount of bees, the amount of brood. That's their, their main uh, concern.
0: Uh huh. Okay, maybe pest invasion and stuff like that too.
2: Well, pest invasion. Once it affects the bees, they of course, they care about it because they care about the bees. Um, they don't really, they don't really care about the pest, uh, you know. In
0: themselves. themselves, no, sure. But do that. I mean, I was a bit curious about this notion of pest detection. I mean, how does the farmer get alerted that there is a pest in the hive? And don't pests in hives work really very quickly? I mean, is it possible for the farmer to have enough time to actually do something about that? Let's take that as an example. How would that work?
2: So that's a very good question. So I mean, that's a, that's the kind of uh, information we would supply to the beekeeper, not not necessarily to the farmer
0: yeah sorry actually i meant the beekeeper really yeah
2: and i mean we can we can assess the state of the hive um based on various parameters and and know if there's a you know strong uh, pest infestation um and they will get that information and we have a pest management system within our device which they can operate in, in such cases
0: okay and what does that do
2: well, I don't, want, I don't want to get into too much details here, but...
0: Uh, okay, don't want to get into too much detail. I'm just wondering how you'd eradicate a pest without eradicating the bees.
2: That's actually a very good question, uh, specifically because the main pest bees are suffering from, which is the varroa mite, that's like the number yeah. one pest worldwide. It's, I mean, when you think about you know taxonomically, it's not that different from a bee, and that makes dealing with it challenging, uh, in a sense. So, I mean, currently beekeepers are using mainly chemicals, which is not that good for various reasons and, and also not that doing such a great job. Um, so, we're trying to introduce alternative methods of pest control.
0: Okay. Um, are you finding that the, 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 there is much uptake amongst beekeepers? Are people embracing this or are, are people regarding it's, its disruptive technology? Are people regarding it a little bit sort of ooh, nervously or how, how, how's the market reacting?
2: So the market is very excited. I mean, beekeepers are generally uh, facing a crisis. Um, you're probably aware of that. So they're they're looking for solutions. Um, so you know, when when we just you know, kind of tell them about the idea, they're like, okay, that's interesting. But interesting, but when they actually see the device and they see the app, so it kind of makes sense. And they say, ah, okay, that, that makes perfect sense. And and they're and they're really eager to try it. So, you know, currently we have a lot of orders which we're working to fulfill.
0: Oh, super. So it's going well. Um, That's really excellent. Cool. Well, that sounds fantastic. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn to Stuart now. Stuart, your project was called Defpol and it considered the picture, if I can put it this way, from the plant's perspective. Your project set out to get a better understanding of the interaction between plant defense and the process of pollination. How does plant defense relate to pollination? Defense, to me, sounds like a reaction or an evolutionary process in the face of a threat. Is pollination somehow threatening? Tell me more about this.
3: Yeah, so yeah, pollination by itself isn't a threat, but plants are attacked by a lot of other insects that feed on the leaves. And what happens in many plants is when when they're attacked by an insect, so a leaf-chewing insect, The plant will upregulate or increase the production of various natural chemicals that it uses to defend itself. And sometimes these compounds or these chemicals can end up in the flowers. And when they end up in the flowers, they can impact on the behavior of bees, the health of bees and the overall performance and fitness of bees.
0: Okay, that's interesting. How? I mean, what, what's the bee picking up? I mean, the bee doesn't munch on the petals of the flower. Is it in the pollen or...? Yeah,
3: that's right. Yeah, so it's in the pollen and it's in the nectar. So plants produce two primary rewards for for bees and other, other pollinating insects. One is nectar, which is a sugary syrup that's uh, present in nectaries. And then the main source of protein for a lot of bees, particularly wild bees, is the pollen that they collect actively from the flowers and then bring back either to uh, a colony in the case of a social insect or a social bee, or back to their their burrow if they're a solitary bee, uh, where they make a pollen ball and feed that to their young.
0: Right, and so that's chemicals within the pollen that might impact upon them.
3: Potentially, yeah. We actually don't. We actually know very little about right. the chemical composition of pollen and how plants vary in their nutritional quality.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
3: Uh, so that's one of the things we're interested in.
0: It seems slightly strange that we should know so little. Why hasn't this been studied more in depth in the past, or is it the case that we've got better tools now and can do it better? Or
3: it's a good question. So partly it's technological. So there's there's better techniques uh, now for analysing fairly minute quantities of pollen, uh, which helps. Uh, Another is simply that um, there's a vast diversity of plant species which different bees interact with and feed on, and it's a rather daunting task to go about documenting all of of that chemistry across all of those different plant species.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You'd still think that perhaps the target species in terms of sort of economic worth would perhaps attract attention. I mean, apple blossom, for example, and and pollen for apples would be, you'd think people would be quite keen to work out exactly what was going on there.
3: Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't, I mean, so uh, apples also produce nectar. Yeah. Um, So it, it varies again by species, what resource the bee or another insect is trying to acquire from a plant. So for some species, if the primary resource they're they're consuming is the nectar, then you might not be interested in the pollen. Sure. I, I mean, there's not a lot of work in this area, but there is some. So uh-huh, for, some, uh-huh. for some agronomically important uh-huh. species, we do know this.
0: Right. And I'm interested in this because I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, the, the relationship between the bee and the plant has been there forever and a day. So presumably they've worked their way around this balance between defense and pollination, toxicity, not toxicity, et cetera. Is this something that's kind of having an impact particularly at the moment? Is there any reason for why it would be having an impact particularly at the moment?
3: No. So to some extent, uh, bees, like any insect consuming any plant part, uh, will have evolved mechanisms for dealing with some of these natural defences, natural chemicals. Uh, but despite this, an insect, any insect can't be perfectly adapted to deal with a whole range of things it might eat. So there is there is variation there as well. And so uh, in situations, for example, where you have a reduction in the diversity of flowering plants due to habitat change, habitat fragmentation or land use change that can cause a, a reduction in the diversity of foraging material that the bees are able to visit. Uh, and so it's important to then know, well, are the species that are left there for the bees to consume? Are those particularly nutritious? Are they not? Uh, and so on.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense, and I suppose climate change comes into play a bit here with the change of of species and and range, habitat range.
3: Indeed, yeah, yeah,
0: right. Um, so how do leaf chewing insects influence pollinators and in the evolution of flowers? Could you tell me a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, sure. So the what what we've been looking at um, is essentially the transport or production of these defensive compounds in flowers, to see whether or not the evolution of a greater defense leads to some compromise at the level of pollination. So we compare different plant species uh, with different levels of defense and we see whether or not the evolution of a greater amount of defense in the leaves has some negative consequence for for the bees. And we do this in a couple of ways, one of which is looking at the nutritional quality of pollen, which I mentioned. The other is looking at the volatile uh, or scent bouquet of flowers and ascertaining whether or not changes to that scent bouquet, change the behavior of bees, uh, limit visitation and limit the amount of pollination that might happen.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. And what have you been finding?
3: So we've, we find some, we, we, we've, so there's lots of interesting stuff here. So the um,
0: <laughs> Go for all of it, all of it. I want all of it. Okay. Uh,
3: <laughs> so the, yeah, the general finding is that uh, when a plant is under any stress, be that uh, attack by uh, a leaf chewing insect or also drought stress we've been looking at, there's a reduction in the visitation rate. How this happens differs a lot between plant species. So in some plant species, it seems clear that there's a, an increase in the production of some odor molecules produced by flowers, but also leaves, which may have a repellent or deterrent effect on, on visitors. In other cases, it seems like that stress is causing uh, the plant to almost shut down its its uh, its floral scent bouquet, and we think it's it's the shutting down of that bouquet that makes the flowers less attractive. They're no longer emitting the attractive scents they used to, and the bees, as a result, choose to go to other plants.
0: Uh huh. What's the relationship with self pollinators here? I mean, are you finding, I don't know, this is a kind of reducto ad absurdum. There's, are you finding that the scent, the the self pollinators have have much greater defense in their leaves? Is, there, is it as simple as that?
3: Uh, it's a that's a great question, and the short answer is yes, that's true. Oh. Cool. Um, it's a bit more complicated, but it does seem that to be the case that um, yeah, so selfing species uh, comprise about 10 to 15 percent of all flowering plant species. So most flowering plant species are actually not selfing; they're outcrossing to some extent. There's a there's a significant minority, however, that are purely self fertilizing, so they don't rely on a pollinator at all. And within those those plant species, we we tend to find a greater uh, investment in this. Uh, response that they mount when they get attacked. So in the selfing species, when they get hit by a leaf chewing herbivore, uh, they upregulate a lot more defensive chemistry, uh, and we think one reason they're able to do that is because there's no negative consequence at the flower level for that upregulation.
0: Okay, so they can go full out on that because they just don't care. If you could put the word "care" into the concept of a plant's behavior, yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So um, this is really very interesting. But what's the potential impact actually of your findings? Uh, is there any impact on the possibility of crop yields or anything like that? How how can this be applied to a certain extent?
3: Uh, There may be some impact on crop yields. It would depend on, again, on the crop uh, species. Many, many crop species, not obviously our our grain species like maize and and wheat. These are are wind pollinated. But lots of fruit and vegetable crops are pollinated by uh, not just honeybees, but wild bees as well. And it is possible that if we are breeding plants for greater defense against pests, or if we are applying um, compounds which uh, allow the plant to mount a response against pests or pathogens, this may have an impact on crop yields. We don't actually know much about this. It's something we're hoping to get to uh, in my group uh, maybe in a year's time.
0: But that has an impact on a genetic modification, doesn't it? I mean, if you create genetically a plant that is better able to resist pests, that actually might have an impact possibly on its ability to attract pollinators.
3: It could, yeah. I mean, there'd be no distinction there between sort of a conventional breeding approach, which would do the same thing, and genetic modification. Any oh. any breeding procedure which created a higher level of defense in the plant could have this, this, this extended consequence at the flower level. The nice thing, or the, the attractive feature of doing something like uh, CRISPR editing, for example, or, or some other form of genetic modification, is that you could presumably also look and specifically target compounds or natural defenses in leaf tissue, but limit the expression of those those compounds in floral tissue.
0: Or maybe you could amplify the expression of the scent bouquet in the floral to compensate for the, you know, go the other way.
3: Yeah, indeed. And there's been... Um, Again, relatively little research uh, looking at breeding for uh, greater attraction of flowers, I would say, compared to the amount of uh, research we've put into um, pest resistance.
0: Okay, that's really fascinating. Thank you so much. Does anyone have any questions for Stuart or any observations to make on what he's been saying? Yeah, Juanito.
1: I have a question. Um, I guess, the is it known that whether the production of these compounds that are for pest resistance are physiologically related with the with the flowering? What I mean is that the more you invest in reproduction, perhaps the less resources you have to invest in, in pests and and, and pest resistance. And whether such comparative analysis have been done across plants, and do we know something about that?
3: Yeah, it's it's a great question. Uh, yeah, so it, in general, in plants, we see uh, what you would call a trade off between the amount they invest in defense. And the amount of resources they have left for reproduction, uh, be that in the form of an investment in flowers or investment in seeds, what we find is that the nature of that relationship changes depending on how reliant the plant is on pollinators. So that's a steeper relationship uh, or a stronger trade-off uh, in outcrossing species, cross-pollinating species, which require pollinators so heavily that um, they simply pay a greater cost when they when they invest in defense
0: it's kind of universal. I don't know. I mean, I I was delighted by your research and absolutely fascinated by it. But when you really do think about it, this notion of investing energy in defense or procreation is pretty universal, actually. I mean, you know, from down the pub on a Friday night through to Impala in the Serengeti. I mean, it's, you know, it's universal, no?
3: Yeah, all all organisms face a limited pool of resources and um, all wild species have evolved to best partition those resources depending on their environments.
0: Yeah. Not all species really, I guess. Yeah. Okay, fine. Well, thank you very much for Stuart. I'm going to move on now to Juanito actually. Juanito, your project also was fascinating. You were considering the gut-brain axis in bees. So I'd love you to tell us more about that. Why did your project brain select bees to consider?
1: So there's been a lot of uh, attention in recent years on this topic of the gut-brain axis because it's becoming increasingly clear that bacteria not only influence the gut and immune system, but it also, but also our brain. And so from a clinical perspective, we have been interested in trying to understand whether we can, for example, first understand this relationship, how the bacteria affect the brain and the behavior consequently, but also whether we can design them treatments for some of these neurodegenerative diseases that are affected by the gut microbiota. However, uh, all these studies have looked into rodent models um, mostly from this clinical perspective, but we can think about that this relationship is probably very ancient uh, because microbial symbionts were already there when the first neural systems evolved, but we know very little about these. Um, And these in particular are very highly social organisms that live in in societies which we define as superorganisms. And they have division of labor, they have very complex structuring of society. So we can also ask the question whether the gut microbiota not only influences the individual behavior, but whether it has an effect at the level of an entire animal society.
0: Okay, that's fascinating. And were there any other reasons why you would consider bees, particularly after all, ants are, are, you know, highly complex societies as well?
1: The reason is that there's been a lot of uh, work done uh, over the past 10 years on the gut microbiota of honeybees. So we know exactly what bacteria are there. It's an easy model to work with in the lab because we can just extract the bees when they are cube. And if we prevent them from socially interacting with other bees when they become adults, they will be germ-free in their intestine, which makes it a perfect experimental model because then we can just feed back the bacteria or not, and we can produce bees with and without the bacteria, with any combination of the bacteria we want because we, we have cultured them in the lab and we have a big collection in the freezer. And, and so then we can uh, see whether these bees are different in physiology, uh, what happens in their brain what happens uh, at the level of behavior
0: so it's basically like a clean slate and that must be quite unique in the animal world really to be able to have a a gut system that actually is almost sterile
1: yes uh, without the need to use antibiotics it's very it's very cool we can do a lot with that
0: and I imagine using antibiotics must be challenging, If usually how it's done. I mean, in murine models, in mouse models, if you use antibiotics to clean out the gut of the animal that's being examined in the first place, and then you introduce bacteria, is there any chance that the antibiotics, you might not know the answer to this when I'm throwing it at you without having warned you beforehand, but is there any chance that the, the antibiotics you use to clean the, the bacteria out have a lingering effect and could perhaps influence the way the new bacteria you introduce colonizes the gut?
1: Yes, and it could also have a direct effect on the physiology of of the animal itself. And we know actually this is the case. So this is a problem for experiments, because when you want to compare a treatment with a control, your control has an additional problem, which is that you use something that could affect directly the physiology and not because of your treatment. This is why we need these germ-free systems uh, where we can control all other factors and then look at, at what we are doing experimentally.
0: Okay, great. So bees are a great candidate. So how <laughs> This is fascinating. How do you go about analyzing and interpreting the content of a bee gut and the relationship that has on their cognitive processes, their brains? How, how on earth do you do that? Tell us more.
1: Yes. After we do these uh, experimental manipulations, of course, we have to con- check whether they worked. And the way we do that is usually at the end of the experiments, we extract DNA from the guts. So we have to dissect the bee gut. Uh, In theory, we could also collect uh, fecal samples from the guts, extract DNA, and then we sequence a gene that is called the 16S rRNA, which is only present in prokaryotes, so in bacteria. And uh, we compare the sequences with publicly available sequences in databases. And like that, we can identify all the bacteria that were present in the sample. And we also know their abundance. So we know that we are X amount of this bacterium and Y amount of another bacterium and so on.
0: So this research is also benefiting massively from, from advances in technology that make this sort of sequencing possible, huh?
1: Surely, yes. We do a lot of things that, with genetics. Also to look at gene expression in the brain, for example, when we look with RNA sequencing and, and so on. It would have never been possible just 10 years ago, probably, yeah. for, to use all these tools. And to look at the uh, at the behavior, we're particularly interested in the social behavior, as I said before, and we have a, a fancy technology that is called automated behavioral tracking system. We have a series of camera, infrared cameras that can detect the position and orientation of little tags, which we can glue on top of the thorax of the bees. These tags look like little QR codes. They have a unique pattern, so they work like a system of scanners and barcodes at the cashier of a supermarket. And they're, the camera systems scan these tags multiple times per second and we can just so we can tag the bees put them under this system in nest boxes and then just let them do what they have to do for about a week for example and at the end we can know uh, all the patterns of interaction so we know exactly how every bee has interacted with other bees how many times in what part of the nest and so on so we generate a huge amount of data and then we can we can analyze it in different ways and one way I've done this is to look at how the bees interacted with their heads and just count the amount of times they interacted and compare bees that had the gut microbiota with bees that didn't have the gut microbiota.
0: What makes the interaction with the head particularly important?
1: This is because bees, as I said, are highly social organisms. And in, in these head-to-head interactions, they do two or three different things where well, they can clean each other. They can transfer information via the antennae, so they, they antennate with each other, uh, or through trophallaxis, they usually exchange fluids, so nectar, uh, which is eventually stored as honey. We, we believe that the gut microbiota has an effect on these uh, transfer of nutrients and information within the hive.
0: Antenate, it's a new word. So the word antenna, you can actually make a verb, antennate. That's fascinating. Yes, yeah, sorry, tell me, what did you find?
1: So the, the most fascinating result that we had from these research is that indeed the gut microbiota promotes the social behavior of the bees. We found that there was about 20% more social interactions via their heads when bees hosted the gut microbiota compared to germ-free bees. And not only that, we found that uh, even for me more, more interestingly is that these interactions became more structured, meaning that some uh, that bees tended to interact much more often with specific uh, nestmates, so with other specific bees, and not so much with the rest of the group. Whereas in the control that was germ-free, these interactions were much more equal in the sense that each bee interacted more or less the same amount of times with the other bees. But overall, they had less interaction.
0: So less interaction and less discriminate. Yes. And so then potentially less efficient?
1: This is what we believe will be the case, because as I said, what they do, a lot of fundamental behaviors head to head. And so we believe that the, the, the flow of nutrients and information may be affected in the hive.
0: So what I'm wondering then is beyond the, 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 the yielding of really insightful data with regards to behavior and, and gut brain access, what, what's the practical implication on this, of this rather?
1: Well, of course, we are interested from an evolutionary perspective, as I said before, and I hope that this kind of research will prompt similar investigation in other social organisms to see whether uh, the same kind of social behaviors are affected on one hand and whether the molecular mechanisms that regulate these interactions between the gut microbiota and the brain uh, are conserved or not, or, or they use different, different proximate mechanisms. Eventually, uh, I hope that we in the future will be able to design treatments, uh, for example, probiotics or prebiotics that could improve the, the social behavior of these animals that are very important to us. And the collective performance, uh, so that they will become even better at collecting, extracting, and storing the resources that they collect from the environment.
0: Hello, you know, I'd like to bring you in here because this seems quite interesting here. So. If you were to come up with a way of using artificial intelligence to analyze the data present, for example, in the feces, to pick up whether there was a lack of of bacterial diversity, or, for example, if there were certain bacteria missing that would make the bees more efficient in their communication processes, that could be a real positive for bee home. What do you think? Is it stretching it?
2: Well, I mean, it is is an interesting prospect. I would say it's... uh... Oh, I'll need to think about it a bit more to, to see <laughs> if it's really feasible or, or not.
0: Put you guys that. in touch with each other. But yeah, I mean, mm. if it's really having an impact, if it does have an impact, as it seems to indicate, on their ability to function effectively and efficiently, then that's something perhaps that, that artificial intelligence could be used to look at, maybe. Does anyone have any questions for Juanito? Because it's a really fascinating subject. Yeah, Stuart. Uh,
3: I, I have a question, actually. Yeah. So, um, and you sort of alluded to this towards the end. But honeybees are obviously a domesticated species, or at least significantly partially domesticated species. Have you compared the gut microbiomes of wild species, like things like bumblebees, for example, to see whether they host a
1: greater diversity of bacteria in their guts? Not personally, but there is a lot of work going on on this. Uh, there's a bumblebee gut microbiota is well characterized. There's new research on stingless bees. And what is very interesting is that they all uh, seem to host the same set of microbial species, but then the strains that uh, these bacteria uh, are, and they, they are distinct between the different uh, bee genera. And so there seems to have been tight coevolution between the gut microbiota and these different uh, host bees.
0: Perhaps the point here is, um, is there a wider spread of bacteria in the gut of wild bees, if we can call them, you know, wild bees, just generally, you know, in comparison to bees that have been, honeybees that have been, bread is the wrong word, but yeah, that have been so closely associated the with right our word. crop process. Oh, is it? Thank you. Okay, yes. bread. Uh, I, mean, I mean, yeah, maybe we imagine that the wild bees are more diverse or, or what are you saying?
1: Actually, uh, it seems to be the other way around. Um, there is research done in my, in my research group uh, where we're looking at strain level diversity and we find that the honeybee hosts a much larger diversity than, for example, Avis serana or, or other, other bee species. And we, we don't know exactly why is that. It could be because of the species area relationship. So there's more space for bacterial <laughs> evolution within, within a honeybee because the populations are larger and so on uh, than compared, for example, with the bumblebee. Um, or these other Asian honeybees, Uh, or it could be because of the management, because of the beekeeping industry, you know, are mixing um, hives from different geographical areas and so on, and that drives
0: uh, more
1: bacterial diversity. But we currently don't know, and it's a very fascinating question. Can I ask a follow-up question?
0: Please do, please do.
1: Um, Have you looked at any solitary bees? Because, of course, like social
3: bees are a relatively minor component of the 20,000 species of bee. I'm curious, like solitary bees might face different challenges and might have different gut microbiota just based on their their life history.
1: Uh, So I am not completely sure. Um, I mean, there are studies out there uh, looking at solitary bees. I know recently, for example, someone has looked at at the the vulture bee uh, to look at whether, for example, you know, how diet influences also the composition of this gut microbiota. If you have a shift in diet, you know, to eat meat <laughs> compared to, to a polynivorous diet, how does that affect the microbiome? And there seems to be some, some differences. It's still in its early stage, uh, there is much more work to, to characterize the gut microbiota uh, of other bee species that needs to be done.
0: Well, I think that's just brilliant. And um, I think we'll, we'll leave it there. But I like the I like leaving these podcasts on the note that there's more work to be done. I like more questions raised than answered each time. I think that's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a really, really interesting episode.
2: Great. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thanks very much for having us. Thank you.
0: <laughs> My great pleasure. My great pleasure. I wish you good luck, all of you, with the continuation of the work that you're doing. Are you interested in what other EU-funded projects are doing to uncover the secret lives of bees and other pollinators? The Cordis website will give you an insight into the results of projects funded by the Horizon 2020 program that are working in this area. The website has articles and interviews that explore the results of research being conducted in a very broad range of domain, from zoonosis to zebrafish. There's something there for you. Maybe you're involved in a project or would like to apply for funding. Take a look and see what others are doing in your domain. So come and check out the research that's revealing what makes our world tick. We're always happy to hear from you. Drop us a line, editorial at cordis.europa.eu. Until next time.